It always starts the same way. HPPodcraft.com First, there's the feeling. Have you ever felt the tread of little feet walking across the top of your skull? Footsteps on your skull, back and forth, back and forth. It starts like that. You can't see who does the walking. After all, it's on top of your head. If you're clever, you wait for a chance and suddenly brush a hand through your hair. But you can't catch the walker that way. He knows. Even if you clamp both hands flat to your head, he manages to wriggle through somehow. Or maybe he jumps. Terribly swift he is, and you can't ignore him. If you don't pay attention to the footsteps, he tries the next step. He wriggles down the back of your neck and whispers in your ear. You can feel his body, so tiny and cold, pressed tightly against the base of your brain. There must be something numbing in his claws because they don't hurt. Although later, you'll find little scratches on your neck that bleed and bleed. But at the time, all you know is that something tiny and cold is pressing there. Pressing and whispering. That's when you try to fight him. You try not to hear what he says. Because when you listen, you're lost. You have to obey him then. Oh... He's wicked and wise. He knows how to frighten and threaten if you dare to resist. But I seldom try anymore. It's better for me if I do listen and then obey. I wish I could blame my wicked thoughts on a little guy on my head. Unfortunately, I get all my commands from a small troll that lives in my left hand. His name is Dylan. Oh, right. Dylan, yeah. Well, he's less of a murdering type and more of a, an eat-all-the-Pringles kind of troll, though, right? I think I remember Dylan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He warned me about him, and I didn't believe it. But then all the Pringles were gone, and... There you go. You know, the proof is in the Pringles, as they say. You know what else they say? And by they, I mean me. Me say, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary <laughs> Podcast. Me, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. <laughs> and me, I'm Chris Lackey. Welcome to Bizarro, HPPodcraft.com. <laughs> and Patreon. <laughs> Uh, since we snubbed Robert Block this past October, which was previously Blocktober, but right. this time it was a Ray Bradbury month, we thought we would give you a little block in January with a month we like to call Happy New Fears. New Fears for New Year's. We're going to do a potpourri of stories this month, no particular theme other than they are horror tales. And we're starting with H.P. Lovecraft's protege, as you say, Robert Block, author of Psycho. The story we're covering this week is called Enoch. It was published in Weird Tales in September of 1946. And it was also in his collection, Pleasant Dreams, colon, Nightmares, from 1960. That's colon, the the punctuation colon. Yes. It's not about a... (laughs) Colon, Nightmares. It's not about colon having pleasant... Yeah, it's not about colon, Nightmares. Or Nightmares about your colon. That's a whole different collection. There's also a 1976 album called Gravely, in which Mr. Block reads this story himself. Oh. I only found out about it a few minutes before we started recording, so I haven't heard it, but if you're oh. a vinyl collector or aficionado, it might be a record to seek out. There are different places online you can buy it. Wow. Although mostly when I think about vinyl, I think about music, not audiobooks. And when I think about music, I think about this week's reader. Returning to the show, it's Mr. <laughs> Levi Nunez. Yes, Levi is the artist behind Loot the Body, a band that creates music based on Dungeons & Dragons and its many influences. We already hipped you to Loot the Body's first track, Tower of the Elephant, based on the Robert E. Howard story. You can watch that video on YouTube where you can also find the sweet tracks down at the tavern, Here Comes the Wizard, and Caught in a Gelatinous Cube. 
love that one. I love it. We'll link out to the page. It's really good stuff. It is. This is the best band to ever cover Appendix N from D&D. Yes, it's the number one band to do that. <laughs> Definitely. But great music to play as you kick off 2020. By the way, I can't believe it's 2020. I know. I, that number doesn't even make sense to me. It's crazy. Blade Runner's the past now. It's the past, yeah. But I guess yeah. that puts us back in the roaring 20s. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're here. Uh, 100 years ago, Lovecraft was just hitting his stride and hopefully... After 11 years now, we are as well. Not sure about that, but well, we've got another year ahead of us. And so, you know, we'll see how we do. But let's talk about this story. It's called Enoch. This was recommended to us by our listener, Murat Yazan, who actually gave us a few good recommendations we'll use this month. Hmm? I also heard about the story last summer. I was talking to a sound guy on this project I was working on, telling him about the podcast and how we'd recently covered a bunch of Robert Block. And he said, oh, have you read Enoch? And when I told him I'd never heard of it, he kind of rolled his eyes like I was an idiot. <laughs> this is apparently a very popular story by Block. <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing it kind of put a dent in my horror nerd credibility at that moment. We're here to rectify that, Captain Gatekeeper. I hope you tune in and <laughs> find out that we now have heard of Enoch, uh, which is a biblical name. I, I believe he was one of the descendants of Adam, who lived between the creation and the flood, that antediluvian era. Mm-hmm. Enoch was the son of Jared and fathered Methuselah. That's the part of the Bible that used to blow me away when I was a little kid and I'd read this stuff because everybody lived for hundreds of years. Yeah. And it like made no sense to me then. I guess it still makes no sense to me. (laughs) Other than it was like a literary convention. But at the time I was like, there were really people who lived this long? Enoch apparently lived 365 years before he was, quote, taken by God, which some interpret as meaning that he was actually taken to heaven alive. Anyway, I don't know if the biblical Enoch is significant to this story at all. Let's just jump into it and see if we can make any connections there. I'm not thinking we will, but... I don't think so. The story begins with our narrator, this guy, Seth, describing a little creature that crawls on his head and whispers things in his ear. Commands of things. Seems like an unreliable narrator, Mm. but actually is it? Now, this little thing that lives on his head... That is called Enoch. I'm pretty sure that this is an unreliable narrator because I think Block is examining mental illness in this story by making us a party to this guy, Seth's thoughts, and then kind of reporting them as if they are real so we can really get inside and experience what somebody who does have a disorder like this is going through. Hmm. I think. But well, Seth, also a biblical name, you know? I, yes. I believe he was the third son of Adam and Eve. So That is, yeah. The only thing in common might be that he's just drawing these names out of the Bible. So Seth is a poor guy who lives out in a shack in the swamp. He's got no friends, and the girls in town used to call him Scarecrow. Seth does what Enoch wants, mostly out of fear, but also out of reward. Enoch gives Seth riches, but not in our world. Maybe in his dreams? Seth is a little fuzzy about the details of this. He just says that Enoch takes him out of himself for days once he does what the thing wants. says there are other places besides this world, you know, places where I am king. Seth finds that these other places are more real to him than his life in the shack at the edge of the swamp. But he does say that Enoch has him killed. It's, it's kind of funny in a way. There's a very simple sentence where he just goes, yes, I kill people. He used to fight against Enoch, but it was too much for Seth to resist. Enoch sleeps up on top of his head and will leave him alone for days when he's asleep, but then suddenly will wake and demand that he kill once again. The thing is, Enoch gives him information about the targets, what they look like and where to find them. There's a tramp walking down the Aylesworthy Road, a short, fat man with a bald head. <laughs> That makes it easier. (laughs) Then he'll laugh for a minute and go on. His name is Mike. He's wearing a brown sweater and blue overalls. He's going to turn into the swamp in about ten minutes when the sun goes down. He'll stop under the big tree next to the dump. Better hide behind that tree. 
Wait until he starts to look for firewood. Then you know what to do. Get the hatchet now. Hurry. Now this seems pretty supernatural to me. He knows things that he couldn't possibly know. Sure, or it's a split personality thing where he's keeping watch in the swamp and learning these details and then ascribing that information to Enoch. We we don't know. There are Mm. a few similarities between the story and Psycho, actually. Which he wouldn't write for another decade or so. But the the split personality, obviously. You know, where he's, he's himself, but he's also Enoch. But also the method of disposing of the bodies, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, Enoch has always watched out for Seth, keeps him from getting into trouble. I guess knowing things that no one would know helps him do that. Mm. But now we're going to get into an account where things didn't work out so well for Seth. (laughs) One night, Seth's kicking it in his shack when Enoch tells him that a pretty woman in black will come knocking at his door. At first, he thinks Enoch is telling him about one of his rewards. So I guess there are some pretty women in those dream worlds he goes to. But then he realizes that Enoch is actually giving him his next target. She will come to the door and she will ask you for help to fix her car. She has taken the side road, planning to go into town by a shorter route. Now the car is well into the swamp and one of the tires needs changing. You will go out and help her when she asks you, don't take anything. She has a wrench in the car. Use that. Hmm. Again, very specific. Now, like you said, maybe he's remembering details out of order in the telling of the story. Maybe. But maybe there is a supernatural. I think this story can be looked at either way. I think so too, yeah. Now, anyway, he begs Enoch not to make him do this because he doesn't want to hurt this woman. But Enoch threatens him with some unknown punishment and he capitulates. Right. He says, better that I do it to her and not to you. So whatever he's going to do to this woman, Seth really doesn't want it to happen to him. After all, Enoch whispers, I can't help it. I must be served ever so often to keep me alive, to keep me strong so I can serve you, so I can give you things. So a pretty typical employer-employee relationship (laughs) is getting set up here. Sure. It all happens just as Enoch predicted and the woman is killed. Enoch also tells him how to use a a log to push the car into the swamp muck. Now, Seth didn't think it would sink, but it does. Enoch knows all. This is what I was talking about. The car descending into the muck is very reminiscent of Psycho. It's one of my favorite scenes from the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I assume it was in the book, but after Norman has killed Marion and disposes of her car, it's it's in the same way. He puts it into a lake or a swamp, Mm -hmm. pushes it in, and then it stops for a minute, right? It's not going to sink. And Norman is panicked and he's looking around, I'm going to get caught. And then suddenly there's some bubbles. The car sinks the rest of the way and goes underwater. And Norman smiles. He's relieved. It's a very unsettling part of the movie. Not necessarily because he's getting rid of a body, but because it's when the viewer almost shifts around to rooting for Norman. Yeah. Even though he's just murdered this woman. Mm -hmm. You get all nervous with him when the car won't sink. I mean, I found myself the first time, and actually every time I see the movie going, come on, come on, sink, sink, sink. Yeah, yeah. I don't want him to get caught. And it's a really strange narrative trick, kind of the template you get much later in Silence of the Lambs, where out of nowhere on the plot, you find yourself rooting for the serial killer, which is disturbing, right? Mm -hmm. Seth also mentions that he used a hatchet on the body, but he isn't specific about what he did. Even though he killed the woman we know by hitting her with that wrench that Enoch mentioned, he hit her in the in the neck with the wrench, but the hatchet also came into play somehow. We don't know how yet. He says, Then Enoch told me to go home, and I did, and at once I felt the dreamy feeling stealing over me. I could barely feel the pressure leave my head as Enoch left me, scampering off back into the swamp for his reward. Hmm. Seth slept for a long time, and he's awoken by a knock at his door. Enoch is asleep on Seth's head, and he stays that way for a very long time after a kill. Nothing can wake him. The Seth answers the door, and it's the sheriff. He has Seth come with him as he reads him his rights. So for once, the law has caught up with him. He says Emily Robbins told folks that she was going to cut through the swamp, and they found her car tracks up to the spot of the quicksand. Enoch had been careful to tell him to erase the heel prints in the muck. He often gives him instructions on how to conceal what he's done. 
but apparently had forgotten all about these tire tracks. Seth is really scared and knows he's caught, so he just clams up for the time being. When the when the sheriff says you have the right to remain silent, that's the right that he then takes. When they cart him off to jail, there is already an angry mob there waiting. They seem like they want to lynch Seth. Now, I know Seth is a murderer, but I feel bad for him at this point. Yeah, see, the switch happened. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's the effect of seeing things from his perspective, like in Psycho or almost like Poe did with the Black Cat we discussed a couple months ago. We see the confusion and duress he's going through. We get a bit of his background. It intensifies the sympathy that you feel, even for somebody that does terrible things. So Seth is put in the middle cell, left there for the night. In the morning, the sheriff and his crew are out trying to get the car out of the quicksand. And Enoch is still sound asleep in his hair. This guy, Charlie Potter, comes in to feed Seth, and he tries to chat Seth up, but Seth isn't saying anything. He knows Charlie wouldn't believe him about Enoch. And Charlie says that there's some county district attorney coming into town for the trial. Charlie does hip him to the fact that the sheriff is making some connections between this murder and some other disappearances a while back. So the net is really closing in on it. After breakfast, the psychologist comes in, Dr. Silversmith, and he talks to Seth. I like how Block goes in for the psychologist uh, stereotype. It says he was a little man with one of those funny beards on his chin. So I assume he's got the Freud beard, you know, business on the sides, party on the chin. (laughs) Uh, He says that there's a kindness in his demeanor. Seth is trusting him. He tells Dr. Silversmith lots of things. How he'd lived with his mother in a shack. Of course, the first thing he's going to ask about is the mother, right? Because Mm -hmm. he's the the stereotypical psychologist. But apparently she made filters and sold them. This is filters with a pH, which I had to look up. They're apparently love potions. Yeah, love potions or any kind of potions it can be as well. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought they were specifically love potions. No, no. Well, that's one of the definitions of that word, but it can also be a concoction or a, a potion. He talks about how they had a big pot and gathered herbs at night. About the nights when she went off alone, I would hear the queer voices from far away. And when you grow up with your mom out carousing with swamp monsters, you don't stand much of a chance in life, I don't no. think. You know, I've seen it a million times. <laughs> so the townsfolk called her a witch, and she was killed when she made a potion for a trapper that enchanted a girl, and it was that girl's father that came to kill Seth's mother. It's your fault that my daughter ran off with this guy. And then Seth explains all about Enoch. Who is still asleep in his curly hair, oblivious to this conversation. I had to mention Enoch and how my mother had made the bargain in the woods. She hadn't let me come with her. I was only 12, but she took some of my blood, pricking me with a needle and dropping it into a little bottle. Then she came back with Enoch. He was to be mine forever, she said, to look after me and help me in all ways. So again, either this literally happened or this is a representation of how she passed on some mental illness to Seth, Mm -hmm. which is probably more likely, but it comes from the mother. After he tells the doctor, Seth sees that Silversmith is disturbed. Seth feels like he did the wrong thing by talking about it. Yeah, he's not quite getting that understanding from the doctor that he thought he would get. (laughs) Not a common case for this doctor to to come across. Silversmith asks Seth if he has heard any other voices, and this just makes Seth laugh. The doc thinks he's crazy, obviously, because he's hearing voices. Like, no, no, I'm not hearing voices. I got a demon on my head. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, this doctor stinks if he doesn't realize how obvious that is. He decides this is the end of the interview, and he just clams up. So the doctor leaves and Seth has a little snooze. And when he wakes up, there's this smiling, happy guy there waiting for him. And he's very friendly and kind to Seth. Comes right into the cell and sits with him. He's not afraid that Seth's going to try and murder him or anything like that. He explains that his name is Edwin Cassidy and he is the district attorney. He tells Seth that he knows he didn't kill any of those people. He asks about Enoch. And of course, this shocks Seth. But the DA explains that the doctor told him about it. And the doctor thinks that Seth is crazy. That fool doctor told me when I met him down the street. He doesn't understand about Enoch, does he, Seth? But you and I do. So the DA knows how to play along. Doc thinks you're crazy, but not me. I get it. We're buddies. 
So he tells Seth that they found Emily Robbins' body with a fat man's body and a small boy and an Indian. He asks if they'll find any more, and Seth nods. The DA says, Enoch must have made you do these things, and Seth nods again. He gets Seth to believe that he won't be held responsible since it was Enoch that made him do all this stuff. Seth confesses to killing nine people all buried in the quicksand. Nine people. Yeah. And I'm, that makes me think this might not be the best police force <laughs> because they're all probably disappearing near the swamp uh-huh. at the edge of which lives a crazy person, you know? Uh-huh. So they haven't even been out to interview him before, even as a witness. Mm. It seems, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just glad, I'm glad that the name of this town is never mentioned because a lot of criminals might move there after reading <laughs> the <this> story. <laughs> So he tells Seth that he doesn't want to make him go up in front of a whole courtroom full of people. So he'll do the talking for Seth. And Seth, oh man, that sounds swell. (laughs) So Seth tells him everything he knows about the people he's murdered. He knows names of some. He just has descriptions of others. And at first the DA is chuckling along with him, still playing like, oh yeah, this is our secret. But then he gets really serious as more and more details come out. Before he leaves, the DA asks where the heads can be found. But Seth, he says, I don't know. Enoch takes them away into the swamp. Aha. So that's what the hatchet was for. It's also, it's a very Columbo way the DA talks about the heads as well. He says, oh, oh, say just one more thing. Um, (laughs) Where do you put all the heads? He always makes me cut the heads off and leave them. I went on. I put the bodies in the quicksand and then go home. He puts me to sleep and rewards me. After that, he goes away. Back to the heads. That's what he wants. The DA tells Seth that he shouldn't tell anyone about Enoch, that if he does, they'll just think he's crazy. And he says, if you give Enoch to me, then you won't have to worry about it anymore. Now, is he trying to do this so he can convict Seth without an insanity plea? Yes. That's what I was getting. Okay. That's what I got out of it. The DA argues that Enoch wouldn't want anyone knowing about him, and Seth agrees. Enoch would be very angry. He's a secret, you know. Seth doesn't want to give Enoch over without asking him. And Enoch is currently asleep. But the DA says, look, I'll explain things to Enoch when he wakes up. Seth warns him and says, you'll have to give him what he wants because that's the the price of being with Enoch. And the DA just goes, yeah, sure, that's fine. (laughs) Of course, as you know, what will happen to you if you refuse to give Enoch what he wants, I warned Mr. Cassidy, he will take it from you by force. He says, you know, fine, fine, whatever, Seth, it's all good. So just then, Enoch wakes up, and Seth tells him what the DA has suggested. Enoch agrees, and he leaves Seth's head. Yeah, he says, that sounds like a good plan to me. New vessel. When I was reading this story, I'm like, is he in the know? I wasn't quite sure if... Who, the the DA? The DA, yeah. If the DA Uh was like some kind of magician or something that wanted this thing for himself. Right. Because I wasn't quite sure at this point in the story, because he seemed so convincing and so Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I thought, oh, maybe he, yeah, maybe he knows something that... It will be revealed, but I don't yeah. think that's the case. No, no, no. Because later on, what we find out, it's quite a surprise to him. Well, right. Even his reaction here, right? Because Enoch moves over to his head mm-hmm. and Seth asks him, you know, can you feel him in there? And then he's, he goes, what? Uh, oh, oh, sure. And the way yeah. he says that, you know, that he's, yeah, we know. he's just humoring him. And it's got to be so that they can throw him in prison or put him to death instead of, I mean, this DA really doesn't want him going off to you know Arkham Asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Seth tells the DA not to wear hats as Enoch doesn't like hats, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the DA, uh, Cassidy, he, he says, don't tell anyone about Enoch. If Dr. Silversmith talks to you again, just say I was lying because no one should think that you're crazy. That sounded like a fine idea. But then I knew Mr. Cassidy was a real smart man. 
And he's got Enoch now, so yeah. yeah. So that night, Charlie comes in with his supper and he calls Seth a murderer. Seth is hurt since he thought they were friends. Charlie leaves and Seth is just alone by himself for the first time in a long time. But you can call somebody a murderer and still be their friend. And <laughs> Seth has got that a little twisted. <laughs> can you? In my experience. Okay. So during the night, the moon shines bright and Seth remarks how the moon always makes Enoch restless and greedy. And he wonders, how is Mr. Cassidy doing with Enoch? <laughs> He's about to find out. Just then, Cassidy comes bursting in, breathing heavily and clawing at his head. Take him away, he screams. Seems the DA now knows that the creature is real. Or at least this is how Seth perceived it all and is telling mm. us now. So he begs Seth to take him away, but Enoch won't budge. He demands the DA, Cassidy, kill somebody. And the DA screams, and he goes into the next cell next to Seth, and he locks the door. Now, that is a little odd if this is all unreliable. I mean, we don't really get a follow-up on this story. No. So this could be a detail that's a lie, but maybe the DA went into that cell so he could just talk to him again or something. But but why would the DA go into the cell and lock himself up if this actually wasn't happening? And I don't yeah. see how Seth could have done that for him. Yeah. Like, he could probably reach him in the other cell. Right? Yeah. If they're adjacent to the bars. Yeah, they're bars. But, in, they but, but locking it up? No. Yeah, I don't know. The DA says, he's crawling around up there now. I can feel him. and I can hear him. The things he whispers. Seth, you must help me call Enoch, take him back, make him go back to you. Seth gives it a shot. He says, Enoch, come on, come home. But Enoch doesn't even respond. Seth says, it's no use. He won't come back. He likes you. So Cassidy at that point cries. Seth asks who he's supposed to kill. And he says, Dr. Silversmith. But he won't do it. And Seth warns him, well, you better do it. But Cassidy, he just moans in pain. And then he passes out. Then he starts screaming. But it's this low guttural scream. And Seth knows that Enoch is taking his toll. So Seth looks the other way and he covers his ears. I just sat there and held my hands to my ears until it was all over. When I turned around again, Mr. Cassidy still sat slumped up against the bars. There wasn't a sound to be heard. Oh, yes there was. A purring. A soft, faraway purring. The purring of Enoch after he's eaten. And then I heard a scratching. The scratching of Enoch's claws when he frisks because he's been fed. The purring and the scratching came from inside Mr. Cassidy's head. That would be Enoch, all right. And he was happy now. I was happy, too. I reached my hand through the bars and pulled the jail keys from Mr. Cassidy's pocket. I opened my cell door, and I was free again. There was no need for me to stay now with Mr. Cassidy gone, and Enoch wouldn't be staying either. I called to him. Here, Enoch. That was as close as I've ever come to really seeing Enoch, a sort of a white streak that came flashing out of the big red hole that he'd eaten in the back of Mr. Cassidy's skull. Then I felt the soft, cold, flabby weight landing on my own head once more, and I knew Enoch had come home. I walked through the corridor and opened the outer door of the jail. Enoch's tiny feet began to patter on the roof of my brain. Together we walked out into the night. The moon was shining, everything was still, and I could hear ever so softly Enoch's happy chuckling in my ear. That's the end of the story. Yeah. Maybe because he did steal the keys from the DA in order to get out so he could have gone out and then locked him in that room so that actually does explain yeah but how did he knock out the back of his head that i don't know 
See, that's I think I, I think this is actually supposed to be taken literally. The story. I mean, maybe is a metaphor for mental illness, but yeah. But if we were to flash forward and there were a newspaper article or something that was from a third party, might say what actually did happen because we really are only getting Seth's account of it. True. So there might have been some kind of instrument that the DA had on him or, or something. Sure. Maybe got like a knife or a spoon and gouged out the back of his head. Some Hannibal yeah. Lecter kind of stuff. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe, you know, or at the beginning, in, early in the story, he's saying that I go to these other places that are more real to me than the real world. Did anything happen at all? You know, maybe they came to talk to him and he's going to he's going to go to trial and all. You know, he never leaves a cell at all. Maybe this is just oh, right. Him in some way going off to those other worlds where he's king, like really a, descending into madness. You a know? fantasy while this end bit is a fantasy. Yeah, that's true. That could be it. Maybe. Of course. It's hard to know. But I don't know. In a way, I like the story better, literally. Well, it's horrific. I mean, it's, if there is actually horrific. is a little guy that drives you, it's like, I'm going to cut your head off if you don't do it to somebody else. Yeah. And he can move to other people. And yeah, I mean, if this is a real honest to goodness monster, <laughs> that's pretty scary. Well, and there's also something about the baddie of the story is the district attorney because he mm -hmm. is taking advantage of this simple-minded guy right. who's done these horrible things, but obviously he's not in his right mind, you know, and, mm -hmm. and shouldn't be murdered for what, what he had done in the past. This guy's taking advantage of him and he's the one that's getting his comeuppance by Enoch. Enoch is kind of protecting the simpleton. Even though he's evil, he's still doing this kind of nice thing. <laughs> it's it's weird. It's very complicated. I well, don't know how wants, I feel. You know, he wants Doctor Silversmith dead. I mean, he's protecting himself. I think he just got a little. He got messed up about those uh, tire tracks. Didn't cover them, mm. and so now he goes. Well, I got to fix this another way, which is by murdering everybody who's there. Possibly <laughs> put Seth away, <laughs> which is a strategy. Sure. Yeah. I don't know if it's the best strategy, though. No, I imagine that as Seth is walking out of the prison, that he's going to make a visit to the doctor now, though. Could be. Presumably. Yeah. Could be, I yeah. I, I, if that's what Enoch wants, I don't know. Or if he walks out of that cell, there's that whole mob ready to lynch him. That's true. It's a fun read. It goes by really fast and it's really interesting. And there's a lot to think about with it. Yeah, it's got the unreliable narrator. It's not quite a weird tale. Although there are suggestions of, you know, when his mother would go off into the woods and commune with odd things. Sure. At night and then comes back with this little guy. Okay, he's going to protect you once I'm gone, which means that she might have had a premonition of some kind of mm -hmm. what was going to happen to her and wanted. Although I don't even, I don't really understand how this, how Enoch is protecting him if he's putting him in this kind of danger where he's murdering people well he seems to have supernatural knowledge if if yeah. we take his account as fact like he knows this woman's going to come up to your door and if you do this there's mm -hmm. going to be a wrench in her car so he knows all these things in that way he's able to get what he wants but also protect seth because seth helps him get what he wants just sound like he got maybe a little sloppy if we take it as something if, if it is just we're hearing the inside of his brain and his insanity it does touch on things that we talked about again in the black cat where we, we were saying you know how responsible is somebody for their deeds and if you get in and you realize what's actually going on under the hood here it does make you sympathetic for seth because he doesn't want to do this stuff he's just driven to do it mm -hmm. by this delusion that he has or this split personality i mean he really needs to go to a mental asylum so you're right, that makes the DA into a baddie, even if this isn't true, because he's manipulating him so he can just put him to in prison to rot. Give him the death penalty. Or give him the death penalty, although there are nine people. So it goes down, so nine people did get killed, though. Even if Seth is mentally ill, should he be punished for that still? I don't think so. No? What good would that do? Well, for the families of the victims, I imagine they might get some satisfaction out of knowing that the person who took their loved ones away from them is being punished. God forbid anything happened to somebody in my family. But if this Seth 
that with these delusions killed somebody in my family, I, I wouldn't derive any pleasure from something bad happening to him. But wouldn't you also not having access to the inside of his mind, the way the story gives you, wouldn't there be part of you that always thought, well, he's making this up? Like, think about Berkowitz, right? He killed, he's walking around shooting people. Mm-hmm. And then when they take him in, he says, oh, this dog was telling me to do it. I think it was all bullshit. You know, this whole explanation he gave about the insanity and the dog talking to him and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That he was just making these stories up. To get the insanity plea. To get the insanity plea or mm-hmm. just because he found it amusing to do so or, you know, was trying to build his legend or, you know, whatever. People were very suspicious that these were actually things that were going on in his head. And the truth is you'll never know, you know. No. So, no. so that would be a very difficult position to be put in. Um, yeah. And I'm speaking for myself, obviously. I'm not mm-hmm. uh, other people I can understand they would have these feelings and they're completely yeah. justified in having them. But punishment is never really a deterrent, I don't think. No, I don't. Th- well, yeah, punishment is bad all around. It's bad for in every, you know, negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement. These things work well, but punishment generally, you know, people don't really learn what they did wrong from punishment, right? That's the idea. Yeah. You just know that you got hurt. So it's not tied up with, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But if you think of the, you know, I mean, if you think of this is a weird way to say it, but if you think of us, the human race as a sort of organism that's trying to function well, and you get these deficient parts of the organism, like, there's a, you know, somebody might say they just need to be flushed out. You know, why that happened isn't important. You know, you kill the cancer cells. These yeah. are things that are causing havoc. I guess going to an asylum and trying to rehabilitate the person is in a way doing that. Yeah. Obviously, you could take that to a really far level and say, well, then get rid of people with disabilities or have other mental issues and you know this this leads into this eugenics kind of thinking so please don't sure. anybody think that i'm no. advocating that at all i'm no, just saying no, that no, no. Um, these are problems people have been trying to solve since civilization existed right you know we're, and we're not going to come up with any answers no and a little person who's talking to me in my head has come up actually a lot you know seth isn't the first person to present that right that defense or that story no um, but man, really cool story. Robert Block's got the goods. This yeah. is much better than what was that book we just read recently? Strange Eons. Whew. Yeah. None of the none of the dumbness of that is present in this story. This is a. It's all really well done. This the yeah, story. This it's it's very one. efficient and clever, and and I really really enjoyed it. Well, next up, like I said, this is sort of a potpourri. I had it by Theodore Sturgeon on the list. We talked about that story back when we did our special episode on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing work. Mm-hmm. Because it is sort of the prototypical Swamp Thing. That sounds great. I want to thank our reader, Levi Nunez. Levi is extraordinary. You can you heard him reading. That was just great stuff. Yeah. You want more great stuff? Go check out Loot the Body. Go to his YouTube page. Follow him on Twitter. Loot the Body. It's awesome stuff. You'll love the videos. You'll love the music. You'll get stuck in the gelatinous cube of his genius. <laughs> I also want to thank some of our patrons. And I'm going to start by thanking Christopher D. Singles. I'd like to thank William Getch. I'd like to thank Slade Rankin. Thank you, Keith C. Datum. Thomas V. Okowitz, thank you so much. I'd like to thank Andrew Proud. We're proud of you. Dylan Stump, you're the best. I'd like to thank Sarah Lingenstein. Thank you, Robert James Martin. And thank you, Nick Dowdy. You guys are the best. Thanks so much for being part of the team. We're going to be back with more Swampy Goodness. That's all for now. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!